I recently went to see the movie 12 Years a Slave. It was because Joanna had a school project that required seeing the movie. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have chosen to do it, and it was a perfectly fine film. But I came away feeling as little after, like I do after an Oliver Stone film. You know, war is hell, but I think I knew that before I went and watched the movie and sat there for two hours, and I felt this a little bit about this, this film as well. I was able to say things like superb acting and a great story of someone kidnapped from freedom and they captured many of the attitudes. It wasn't simplistic. I can say all those things. But in the end, it was just watching brutal stuff with little redemptive moments here and there for a couple of hours and it, it was grueling. And at the same time as watching this movie, I've been preparing for a novel theology class with, a, with various kinds of war literature, a session on the yellow birds, uh, by a veteran of the Iraq War. And I've been reading an extraordinary, one of the most compelling novels I've read for a long time called The Daughters of Mars by Thomas Kinnally. And it's a story of, of nurse, two sisters and then a group of nurses who more or less go together through the violence and brutality of the First World War. And so these stories are all inescapably stories of brutality and also what it means to be human in the midst of such bloody uh, conflict and, and oppression. And so I've been sort of immersed in this, in this world. And then dropping right into the middle of it comes Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah of Jerusalem, promising a peaceable kingdom, governed in accordance with God's desires for all creation by a ruler who would be wrapped in righteousness and fidelity. And the whole of creation would be transformed or turned or oriented to right relationship with the source of all life. And even the natural and inexplicable violence between varieties of animals will come to an end. The wolf and the lion shall lie down together. Children need no longer fear poisonous snakes. The lion will lie down with the lamb, and so on, and so on, and so on. This peaceable kingdom. Is that a pipe dream? See, John the Baptist says, it's happening. Jesus says, that kingdom is in your midst. We are proclaiming something other than brutality. Do we really have a reasonable and holy hope for a world marked by the peace with justice that is the sign of God's presence in the midst of creation? See, that's our claim, and it's our claim over against the self-proclaimed realists. For the philosophers among you, I'm talking about the tradition of Friedrich Nietzsche and others who say that violence is the unavoidable reality, the basis of all life. We say over and over, that violence and degradation and death are not the final word in life. We stand in opposition to those mythologies with violence at their core, call it the will to power if you like, that have the effect of dehumanizing us, making us less than we are, perpetuating injustice in a world yearning for peace. And yet can we? Can we make those claims and proclaim that good news with a straight face those who represent the new atheists say we cannot, that we're living in a fantasy world that actually serves to perpetuate the violence we abhor, that our niceness makes things worse. My other rabbi that you've heard me speak of before, Rabbi Ed Friedman, wrote a wonderful parable called The Friendly Forest. And in this story, the denizens of a happy forest decide to welcome the application of a tiger to join them. For other forests had tigers, and they had no tigers, and they wanted to be inclusive and, and, and really nice. The lamb who was in the forest, however, had some apprehensions, which, being a lamb, she sheepishly expressed to her friends. 
They told her not to worry. They made it a condition to the tiger that living in the forest meant he had to respect the right of every person to live and enjoy their life in the forest, all well and good. But every time the tiger saw the lamb, the, la the tiger began to make threatening noises and growling and pawing the ground and showing teeth and things like this. And the lamb didn't like it and told her friends. And the friends said, don't worry. It's just the nature of tigers to be like that. That's just the way tigers behave. It'll be all right. But in time, as often is the case when we are threatened, the threat begins to consume our imagination. And the tiger began to occupy the lamb's imaginative world and fill her, her life in ways that she hated. And, and she, she, she said, they, they said she's just being too sensitive, needs to let it go. Not really easily done, perhaps, but eventually she decided that living with this terror was simply not worth it. She was going to leave the forest, and she went to say goodbye to her friends. They said, don't be silly, even while some of them wondered secretly what the lamb was doing to encourage the tiger's aggressive behavior. <laughs> because that's what we do with problems, is we blame the person who's expressing them. And they decided that clearly the thing to do, rather than the lamb, everyone needed to sit down and communicate, because clearly they might come to some better understanding if they could just meet and talk and work things out. The lamb wasn't sure about this. Two reasons. First, she wasn't sure that if it's a tiger's nature to be aggressive and threatening, how communicating would make it less aggressive and threatening. How does communication get a tiger to change its nature? And her second thing was more troubling as well, and that she knew that out of these meetings where you communicate, you often wind up kind of compromising. And she wasn't at all sure that she wanted to get into a situation where the invasive one agreed to be a little less invasive and the invaded one, namely her, agreed to be a little more tolerant of a little bit of invasion. She didn't think this communication thing was really going to work for her. Her friends told her she needed to speak up more, she needed to be less sheepish, she needed to be strong with the tiger, and, they just, and communication was the answer. And the parable that he tells concludes this way. He says, one of the less subtle animals in the forest, one more uncouth in expression and unconcerned about just who remained exactly, was overheard to remark, I never heard anything so ridiculous. If you want a lamb and a tiger to live in the same forest, you don't make them communicate. You cage the blasted tiger. <laughs> and the rabbi is getting at a truth that it's all very well for us to be nice. It's all very well for us to have principles. It's all very well for some people to be Mennonites or pacifists, to believe in unilateral disarmament, or that love can transform even the Hannibal Lecters of this world, who believe in isolationism or extreme libertarianism or any kind of position that's meant to give us some sort of certainty about, about our relation with the world. And it's all very well, and I'm blessed with friends who hold every one of these positions. But none of these ideas or commitments actually end the reality that some people and so some nations are invasive and need to be limited in their capacity to create mayhem and violence and war in the name of economic justice, religious freedom, or any other perversion of the truth. So here I'm with the realists. I want the tigers of the world caged if they are to be in relation with those they would victimize. I don't believe there will be prisons in heaven, 
but I'm in favor of forcibly regulating the lives of those who are not only unable to regulate their own behavior, but are also damaging or murderous toward others. In general, I prefer invasive agents be stopped. Is there a proper ethical response to the Chinese claims to airspace over islands also claimed by Japan? If we're paying attention, we know something bad is going on and that someone who has real power and real strength will need to be willing and able to use it if another stupid, senseless war is to be avoided. So in the middle of this world, this world of realism, if you like, John the Baptist and then Jesus say, now Isaiah's vision of the peaceable kingdom has begun in our midst. And this pro proclamation serves as a challenge and a corrective to us who proclaim peace, even to our own nation when we believe we are acting morally in relation to others. Step back, think about it. Even to those who would cause our prisons to overflow with those whose behavior does not need that kind of constraint and for whom there are often alternative ways to be punitive or coercive or corrective if we have the will to find them. And a challenge even to each of us as we justify our inherent tendency to believe the mythology of redemptive violence. For me, I realize when I bang my hand on the table or let loose a flow of self-righteous invective, it does happen, we call it daddy's special driving words. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sign that I need to step back. It really is a sign that I'm angry to the point of violence and I need to step back or I'll be reactive instead of choosing a response. I want to make sure I'm responding in a situation and not merely reacting. And in the midst of brutal stories of slavery and bloody warfare, there are signs again and again of people choosing responsibly to seek something much more powerful in chosen responses, small kindnesses, seeking even for love itself. It happens. There are signs all around us of the peaceable kingdom. Bishop Tutu on Nelson Mandela, I'm sure many of you read this as well. The truth is that the 27 years Madiba spent in the belly of the apartheid beast deepened his compassion and his capacity to empathize with those of others. On top of the lessons about leadership and culture to which he was exposed growing up and his developing a voice for young people in anti-apartheid politics, prison seems to add an understanding of the human condition. Like a most precious diamond honed deep beneath the surface of the earth, the Madiba who emerged from prison in January 1990 was virtually flawless. Instead of calling for his pound of flesh, he proclaimed the message of forgiveness and reconciliation, inspiring others by his example to extraordinary acts of nobility of spirit. Tutu goes on in that same vein about this extraordinary man in prison through no desire of God but through the attempts of a brutal and violent system to impose a brutal and violent will. It happens every day somewhere in the world, and yet in the midst of it, there are signs that the peaceable kingdom is possible even now in our midst. And so even today, when we are drawn inevitably to violence in so many ways, 
so we as followers of Jesus can choose over and over responses that continue to unveil the destructive, dehumanizing myth that violence can ever be redemptive, just as it was shown for all time and revealed as such on Jesus' death on the cross. The goal of all creation is not the love of power, but the power of love. May we ponder this in our hearts as we prepare for Christmas, responding to the gospel in silence and in prayer.